This Short Code podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at mededmedia.com. Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Short Code podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews by students for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcoat.com. Welcome back to the Short Coat Podcast, a production of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. I'm Dave Etler. Uh, with me today in the studio, our old friend, MSTP student Miranda Skeen. Hello, hello. M1 Alexa Schmitz, 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 Schmitz hello. joins us for the first time on the show. Uh, we're also joined by our beloved professor of anatomy and cell biology, Justin Sipla, PhD. Well, hey there. And if you somehow sensed another presence in the studio, <laughs> listeners, uh, it's spooky how right you are because we're honored to welcome singer-songwriter, four-time Grammy winner, 12-time nominee, and American music star, Roseanne Cash. Welcome. Hello. Welcome, Thank Roseanne. You. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, so before we sat down uh, here this afternoon, you were on a panel discussion uh, sponsored by Hancher Auditorium, who I should thank for for uh, uh, suggesting this in the first place. Um, the Writing and Humanities Program at the Iowa Neurosciences Institute. And of course, when I heard you were coming, I sort of just had to ask if you'd visit with us. Um, but I did want to sort of make sure that we talked about um, why you were even interested? Why did you even say yes to this idea of coming to talk to a uh, to, to, uh, a, to a college of medicine? Audience? Uh, well, I'm really interested in neuroscience, music, and the brain. And I had brain surgery in 2007 for Chiari malformation. And after that, I became even more interested. I've always been interested in neuroscience, but even more interested in brain pathology mm -hmm. and also just the particular neural pathways that are worn by creativity and music and um so and i i like talking to scientists i like science in general it just fascinates me and it's not that far removed from music and creativity in my mind how so it requires structure discipline and leaps of faith you know and a kind of sense of jazz composition <laughs> you know what i mean I it's do, like I it's do. part discipline and part art and i i also like things that are like particularly quantum physics theoretical physics there's so much poetry in theoretical physics Right, just some we're of gonna them. get along. Right, <laughs> dark matter. Because <laughs> yeah, I think that's interesting. A lot of I think a lot of non scientists don't really think of it that way. Oh my god, I absolutely love it. The, the inexplicable esoteric aspects of theoretical physics are there's beauty at the center of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's also something there about tr both of them are trying to sort of grasp something that's intangible and that's try to right. put it into mm -hmm. words and yeah. explain it and express it. That's a great way to put it. There's a mystery at the center of both, of both art and science. They're both searching for very similar things. We don't really know much about the reality of this universe, and we're all struggling to find ways to articulate what we think is going on and what mm -hmm. our brains 
allow us to feel about what's going on and to share that with each other. There's lots of ways. There's different modalities. Music seems to be a really potent one. Uh, mm-hmm. Narrative in any kind of form seems to be a potent one. And it, good science requires people to figure out how to tell their stories mm. and how to connect with people and to how to convince them to be willing to see evidence the way that they see it. There is art to that. It's in many ways no different than convincing a reader of, of fiction uh, how to get behind the characters. Right. And what you're talking about, too, is microcosm and macrocosm, you know, that what's going on inside reflected in the universe and the outside world. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I was, um, I was struck, you, you know, in your discussion today, I was struck by an idea that, you know, music is a product of the brain, right? Mm-hmm. But it's not just that. It seems to be a fundamental drive, isn't it? It's a, it's a, it, you know, it's either whether you create music or you just enjoy it, it is, um, a universal impulse well yeah and we're rhythmic by nature you know there's rhythm in everything our heartbeat our bloodstream and touching the rhythms of our own bodies and of the universe and of seasonal change and all of those things they're founded in rhythm so it makes sense that music would be just cellular for us mm-hmm. and music before lyrics and then add poetry to the music and you know, you got the whole enchilada. <laughs> I'm deeply moved just listening to you say these words. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you're talking You're talking Justin's language. Right? <laughs> Hit me right here. I know, we're all just over here in the corner having transcendental experiences. <laughs> it's like, oh, there goes my soul. It's flying out the window. <laughs> well, and you know, you, you said about music from the brain, but also from rhythm, but it's also from something completely intangible, you know, the mystery at the center of it like we were saying and that to me that's what god is is that creative impulse Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and as artists you're always trying to just get your own self out of the way so that impulse can come through and i know that's the same for scientists as well isn't it i think so i think something that's interesting to me about the sort of universality of uh, music appreciation um it's not just a human thing Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that kind of makes it a deeper experience by all of the life that's figured out how to to exist and to propagate in the history of this planet. I mean, when we look at how music, um, we could talk about the different ways the brain and you know interprets sound and appreciates music, and there's a lot to kind of think over there. But we also know that the reward systems of the vertebrate brain uh, are they're set up in such a way that when an animal hears music, it reinforces for it. And mm. it's not just in humans. This works in mice models. Like animals that you don't think of as primates still seem to be interested in complex waveforms of sound that their brain has to construct and model a certain way. And I find that to be incredibly uh, deep and uh, almost spiritual even because mm-hmm. it, it wow. it's an underpinning of of animalian experience that is beyond just what humans do with it and that's a weird thing to think about because the world itself is full of music yeah. you know like you said the rhythms of our own bodies but also the, the sound of water falling on rocks and the the rush of wind and the leaves i mean this is not something that has tangible characteristics until a brain makes them that way and that's, that's amazing to me. That is so interesting. So that would mean that it's some time in human history, even pre-verbal, that we were still responding to something 
to sounds and to the crackle rhythm. of the fire around the right. uh, around the campfire before right. there was ever language to explain what we felt about it to each other. You know what's interesting to me too as a musician is that there are some chord progressions that move everyone, virtually everyone. Mm-hmm. My so my husband says all of humanity loves the one to three minor chord change. You know, there's just <laughs> something about it that tugs at our heart. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Chiari. Uh, malformation mm-hmm. um, and I did want to talk about it can you can you tell us what your symptoms were mm-hmm. um, how did you you know how did it first appear and, and how did it progress for you pain that was the first symptoms headaches and then more c- global pain mm-hmm. uh, spine pain pain that I couldn't even pinpoint like I was in pain but I couldn't tell you what part of the body it was coming from did, I, did it start off small did it did it um, to, it start off with headaches, like I had chronic headaches and, mm-hmm. and migraines. Do you mind explaining how oh. you felt the headaches? What part of your head hurt? Um, starting in my neck and then going down one side of my arm or up the back of my neck or down into my spine. Yeah. And uh, so in case people, your listeners don't know, which they probably do because they're all med school students. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I don't really know, and I am a med school student, so... They know an awful lot. Don't... don't basically, the short version is that the skull is too small, and it's crushing the cerebellum, and it causes the cerebellum to be squeezed down into the... Um, near the brainstem and down into the spinal space there. I'm not using technical terms, but you know what I mean. So mine was pretty That's severe. Pretty technical. It was uh, 15 millimeters down, which is a very... Um, it's an impressive three times the official uh, three times the official limit right um and i also formed a syrinx in my spine which is a swelling around the spine that fills with fluid which can also cause its own set of problems Mm -hmm. so i had been doing yoga um power yoga for years i had to quit it because i couldn't move anymore and it just got worse and worse. It took me a long time to get diagnosed. And yeah. finally. So how many years was it between when you were experiencing these symptoms to when you figured out what was going on? The headaches, I think, my whole life. Mm. And then the last 10 years before the diagnosis, it got worse and worse. And I kept going to doctors and new age healers and alternative therapies. And none of them could, you know, I was told it was everything from menopause to stress to um atypical migraines just a lot of different diagnoses before i finally got a neurologist who knew what was happening and i think you quite rightly were angry about those i was i was uh, very angry I was particularly angry at the alternative th- therapies and those sometimes those people can be very arrogant you know and tell you it's Somebody actually told me that I wore too many dark colors and that's what was wrong with me (laughs) or that it was something left over from my childhood or that it was stress or that it was this, that and the other. And um, but my own internist who missed the diagnosis was absolutely devastated that he missed the diagnosis and Mm -hmm. went back to study Chiari malformation and then teach it to his own residents to kind of. Make sure that that didn't happen again to anybody. So you said something during the panel earlier that really yeah. resonated with me that you um, you diagnosed yourself. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you, your neurologist didn't get there. The first you, one didn't. Um, you got there. 
and then took that to your care provider and they still didn't believe you. Mm -hmm. And then you switched uh, doctors. That experience happens a lot in patients. It happened in my own life with my mm -hmm. gallbladder problems that I had. And, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting dilemma that patients face. And I think that doctors face in trying to match people to the right therapies and sort of coming together to figure out what's actually going on in a person particularly life. if it's an unusual diagnosis right. i mean you don't see chiari malformation every day you sure. particularly don't see it in a 50 year old woman or a strange presentation of a right of a, an, a more common right illness. yeah like something that doesn't necessarily fit along with what you learned in your board exams well sure. it's so hard too because you guys are taught you know don't look for zebras Right. Um, and that, but sometimes it's a zebra. And, well, exactly. That's, <laughs> which is shocking. Right, right. And it, so, but, but that, that, that training must be very um, well reinforced because it can take a long time for people to start looking for zebras. But um, what Justin said is so important about being your own advocate mm -hmm. and not being intimidated by a doctor saying, no, that's not it. If you know you're still not getting the right diagnosis. But then mm -hmm. the reverse is also true that you have to that as physicians or the obverse as physicians um you have to be open to the idea that your initial diagnosis might be wrong might be yeah. wrong and um, I, as i was sitting i was also thinking that there might be an inherent fear in looking for those sort of weird abnormal things because there's always a fear of starting to over treat or overlook for things and that you'll start like treating things that don't actually exist right so it's kind of a fine line but then it's like there is definitely such a thing as being too cautious in your treatment of a patient like there's such a thing as being over aggressive but there's also being over cautious <laughs> there's a very fine line you need to find there mm. i don't think it's as bad as it used to be but it was also um women were everything was Menopause was a catch-all diagnosis for everything, or stress, or hormones in general. And um, yep. I found some doctors to be very condescending about that. Yeah. You know, everything can't be about hormones. Yeah, like not every woman is just a man with pesky hormones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One of the features of, of pain is that it kind of sucks away your ability to um, focus on your world. Mm. Um to focus outside of yourself, um, I think is how somebody on the panel today put it. And um, Dr. Howard, yeah, said that. yeah, who we interviewed a long time ago. I yeah. would like to say he was uh, on the show. Look for it in uh, March of last year. Anyway, uh, I got to plug my own show. <laughs> Get those extra downloads. Get those extra <laughs> clicks. The thing that I found interesting about that is that you know this could have been the end of your career, and in a sense, who you thought mm. you were i imagine that must have occurred to you at some point can i oh god can yes. i continue to be you know roseanne cash singer songwriter it, it must have been extremely scary in so many ways i i didn't i thought i was growing old really quickly mm. i thought it would ruin my marriage mm. that he would think i was just a complainer you know, so I would hide things from him. I would hide how much pain I was in because I didn't want to be that complainer. It um, took away my creative impulses because when you're under a veil, a fog of pain all the time, I was just searching for ways to manage it rather than putting my energy into something creative. Um, I was despairing towards the end before I was diagnosed and as Dr. Howard said, you know, you end up turning everything inside. Your whole world becomes about pain rather than 
engaging with the world yeah. and living out your mission. Mm-hmm. And that's what I got back after the surgery, after I recovered. I got my own mission back. Yeah, that's a really uplifting story in your yeah. case. It really is. <laughs> yeah. I think it's amazing how even sort of low level but chronic pain can can even absolutely do that. You know, pain is it's it's a it's such an important signal to the brain. Um that even if it's you know not that intense but it occurs over a long period of time the damage is sort of similar do you know there was something i should have talked about on the panel that i forgot to mention is that i have done sound therapy Mm. since my surgery um i work with this woman uh physical therapist she does uh breathing but also sound because she believes that your own sound is healing to you the sound of your own voice can be healing and that those micro vibrations in your skull that your sound makes when you just make um, sustained vowels even that that in itself is also healing and can kind of gently put things back in place. I don't know if it's true. I think it is for me. My The sound of my own voice was healing to me. I have ideas about why it could be the case. Okay, tell me. I'm very yeah, interested. I, but, you know, this is, you know, <laughs> it's because these are whole brain problems. You know, think about the, the sorcery that has to happen to get vibrations in the air, which is all that sound waves are, right? There's nothing, a sound wave is just a pressure wave between my face and your head doesn't sound like anything it's just air pressure right right and that's causing deflections of hair cells in your inner ear system and that's causing signaling to change in neurons which is going up and changing the signaling in cortical neurons which is causing somehow via magic the brain <laughs> to construct the experience of sound and that's still just how to get it to go some tone right but then from all of the different uh, bandpass information and in, the fluctuating vibrations going on in the universe around us and extracting from that things that seem relevant, the brain has to put all of it together. And it is not a one part of the brain thing. It's a whole brain party. And so if there's a therapeutic sort of, or, or, you know, sort of psychotherapeutic value to music, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that you're forcing all these different neuronal networks to get engaged. And that allows them to do different things like not represent pain or not represent other concerns you might be having because in order to suck music harmony and spectral qualities of sound out of air vibrations which are inherently nothing right they don't Mm -hmm. sound like anything the brain makes all of that up and so you know if you're going to task it to do that, you have to have the whole brain involved. And the same thing is true for language, even though there's definitely that lateralization, left side language stuff. Mm-hmm. And we we can kind of say this area works on that and this area works on these things. Not, you know, when you add language and communicating with each other in words, it allows us to change the way our whole brain is representing reality just by virtue of speech. Which again is making air pressure change and is a kind of music and has musical ups and downs just like music. So whole brain stuff and the human brain from the beginning that we can appreciate of its evolutionary history has been about sharing stories and and doing complicated things with spectral qualities in the universe. So uh, that's my thought is that you, you have to, in order to somehow get music out of this, I mean, think of how hard it is to give music back to someone who's lost yeah. their hearing and their cochlea, right? A cochlear implant barely lets you appreciate you know enough information to hear speech 
but you can't recover music. It can, there's not enough way to get all of that fluctuation in bandpass, you know, frequency to somehow be detected and somehow represented in your brain. That's a heartbreaking thought. Isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, can I take your class, by the way? <laughs> that was so awesome. Right right test now. tomorrow. Yeah, that, that whole <laughs> thing right was so awesome. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> I know. We I'm like learning to... far more from you than you. No, 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 it's not this true. Is, this is just a quick aside to tell our listeners how awesome Dr. Sipla is. There's always like a, some lecture on the cortex where he talks about, you know, the same thing about vision, about how it's like, you know, it's just some UV radiation in the universe and you're constructing your world based on how you see that. And it just everyone in the room walks out of there feeling like I'm living in the matrix. The world isn't real. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing here what is in real. What the world is happening yeah. to my Yeah, it's like it's like the existential crisis class. It's great. Well, then. The next step of that is that you can choose how you organize your perception of the world, right? Mm -hmm. uh, You can frame anything any way you want. It's like Abraham Lincoln said, at the age of 50, you deserve the face you have. Mm. I mean, by the choices you make to how you perceive the world. Ultimately, your perception of the world is the only truth you have. Exactly. But then how do we have a shared experience if we're all... We just come to an agreement of what social reality is. (laughs) Yeah, how do we have a shared experience? That's a good Language. Language, yeah. We put labels on things that are just completely arbitrary. But we train each other from a very young age in a cultural Mm -hmm. setting what the meaning of those things are. Mm -hmm. So it's all trained and shared and communicated from generation to generation. And that's how that whole thing is spread through time. Well, what's interesting about that too is that artists um, in general reject others' perceptions of what the world, how it is constructed to create their own internal world as adam savage once said i reject your reality and i substitute my own amen (laughs) definitely (laughs) amen (laughs) i have to ask i apologize i'm bringing this down from like the highbrow spectral neural stuff but (laughs) if you don't my head's gonna explode going to take a break for a second because I've always wanted to ask a professional musician this when you're writing songs do you and I apologize you've been asked this a million times but do you start with like you know music that you enjoy or lyrics that you find inspiring or is it like sometimes one sometimes the other or a mix how does that there's, generally start? there's no way to um there's no way to formalize it like it's not if you could it wouldn't be songwriting or performance because it it happens with a burst of inspiration and then there's discipline applied to it and then there's editing and then there's going back through it you know E.L. Doctorow said this great thing he said writing a novel is like driving a car at night you can only see as far as the headlights go (sighs) but you can get all the way home (laughs) right so it's like being in the moment continually sometimes it starts with lyrics sometimes with music sometimes from a a snippet of a conversation that i write down um sometimes from a competitive sense of i hear a great song and i want to write something better (laughs) you know it starts in a lot of ways i like that creativity out of spite (laughs) yes exactly (laughs) and then has that changed for you like sort of your creative process as you've gone through this like you know escalating pain and then surgery and then recovery has that kind of changed the way that you approach your creative process or is it how is that well it's 
changed my sense of confidence. <clears throat> I mean, I think all writers and artists have uh, varying degrees of imposter syndrome at some point in your life, you know, and insecurity. Insecurity is part of it. You know, you just have to go, oh, well, that's part of the game. But it's given me freedom to, post-surgery, I think I've had more freedom to write inside of madness or um, ambivalence or create songs that are ambient without being really specific, you know, mm -hmm. as well as character-driven songs. I've, I've been exploring both. I feel more freedom. Let's just say that. That's awesome. <laughs> you know, one of the things I like to talk about with medical students is, um, is keeping their feet on the ground, mm -hmm. um, even as they become more and more respected, in some cases revered. Um, and I kind of wondered if there were parallels with becoming a famous musician or artist or public figure. Um, is that something that you sort of thought particularly about? Yes, I've thought about that a lot. I think that as they say in uh, Buddhism, it's essential to keep a beginner's mind that once you think you know it all and you've stopped learning it, you're dead in the water. Once you develop a kind of hubris, like I've achieved, I'm at my mountaintop, there's no place else to go. There is no place else to go, yeah, right? Exactly right? You don't learn anymore. You don't create outside of your comfort zone anymore. I mean, I think that being at the edge of your comfort zone all the time is a great way to be where you're always on a limb, you know, where it's, you're, taking a lot of risks and um my dad used to say this great thing he used to say i can learn so much more from a child than i can for someone my age because they're just wide open they want to know that's really interesting yeah and there's i mean humility is a really undervalued trait um uh-huh well I, I, yeah, I, I feel like i've experienced this with my own kids you know sometimes like you know in a very small way you know, sometimes you go to a place that you've been before, but you've brought your children in there and they're there for the first time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden you start thinking about all these inputs and things that you're seeing that you have seen a million times before, but which suddenly look, you're like able to see them in a whole new, through the child in a whole new way. Yeah. Yeah. So there's really something amazing about that. And what you said also reminded me, I was actually just going through um, like a poetry class that I'm taking. And one of the quotes that was said there was the beginner's mind has many options and the expert's mind has few. Mm. Mm. And I think there's something there for creativity where it's like the more you think, you know, the fewer places you have to go. So I, I didn't mean for that to rhyme, but it did. So. <laughs> well done. It sounded like Dr. Seuss a little bit. I am a burgeoning <laughs> poet. so I, Let's yeah. just add just a little bit of trippy neuroscience to this. Yes. Okay. Yes, please do. Yes. So. The, a, a child's brain oh. is. <laughs> I think I know what you're going to talk about. Are you talking about like the, the alpha waves or? No, well, no. We, we don't have to get even that weird about it. Just like. Stop <laughs> studying for your exam. We're trying to do a podcast. <laughs> <on> this. <laughs> no, no, no. this isn't on the test. No. It's next, a lecture next week, I guess. But the child's brain is less modular. And what I mean by that is that you're the information's coming in from all the sensory systems and it's training up the networks of the brain to mm -hmm. represent the world in the ways it's going to represent it. Mm -hmm. But there's essentially a limitless kind of option to that organization when you're little. 
And then you train up, you train up, you organize it. You then start tasking different parts of the brain to have certain functions and to look for certain things in the world and to suck that information out of incoming information and then to predict that that's going to be there. And you start to see the things you've trained your brain to see and hear the things you've trained it to hear. And that's how brains form. Okay. But uh, there's advantages to that. You end up having more executive control of your decisions by compartmenting. It's like building a computer and saying, I need these different parts to work on these problems so we can get more done. But the trade-off is you, um, you can't organize all that information different, you know, as fluidly as you could when you're a kid. Like when you're a kid, everything is fantastically overwhelming and amazing because you don't have the, you haven't compartmentalized your brain around all the different ideas of it. Right. And, you know, so when your dad says, I learn more from a kid, all of us will learn more from children because they're physically filtering the world in a different way than they ever will the rest of their mm -hmm. life. Wow. So one of the things is, you know, that I always think about is med students, I think, learn to play a role for their patients. And um, what got me thinking about this was your idea that um, th that, you know, that an, an expert basically is closed off from from certain uh, mm -hmm. opportunities mm -hmm. to see the world. Um, but the role that you play for your patients is the sort of wise, serious, comforting presence. Mm -hmm. um, and at first you feel sort of uncomfortable in this role. And then you... <laughs> Sorry, that's just the understatement of the century. Yeah, right? Kind of uncomfortable in this role. <laughs> and then you grow into it, right? Mm -hmm. And then the parallel I see is, you know, as a musician who gets up on stage, you also... I mean, we all play roles, right? We all put on masks. But you also play a role that maybe you were uncomfortable with um, in the beginning. In the beginning, yeah. And that you grow into. Yeah. Um, I mean, is it just repetition? Is just, you know. Well, there is something to be said for Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours of doing something, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. but, but at the same time, I know bar bands who work 10,000 hours who never did get beyond that. I'm not being mean, but you know. <laughs> no, it's, it's true. It's true. So I think it's partly developmental and it's part and maturation, but it's also curiosity. I didn't get stuck. I, in the beginning, the very beginning of my career, I thought you'd go on stage to get judged. And then I began to understand it was about community, that the audience and I were there to create something in two hours that would be wiped away at the end of the night, but that was uh, a chemical reaction between me and them, that they brought, that it was a 50-50 deal. I wasn't just up there to entertain, but that it was a shared experience. And it's like Bob Dylan said, the audience comes to feel their own feelings. They don't come to feel yours. Mm -hmm. And so to create a space where that can happen, where we can be moved together, um, and that's, and I continue to learn that if that old program comes in about I'm being judged, I missed that note, I forgot that word, whatever, all of that internal criticism, I've learned how to, you know, shove it aside and get back into that space where we're having a shared experience. The exact you know? same thing defines teaching. So I used to there feel you getting you stepping in front of med students when you first start doing it is one of the most intimidating things any instructor would ever have to do. Because uh, med students will tell you. Well, yeah, they'll tell you what they don't like <laughs> in real time. Okay. But, but, and then, you know, then they'll give you updates for months and years after the fact that this or that report that they file about what they didn't like. But, but it was, it's not just that it was that it's the exact same thing. You step out there, the lights go down and now they're all looking at me to somehow know the answers and share it with them. 
And it was it, it, at some point you train yourself to, to embrace the idea to do exactly what Roseanne just said, which is, this is a shared thing. I always tell the students at the end of the course, I've learned way more from you or as much as you've possibly learned from me. And they all kind of chuckle at that, but it's a very real thing. The energy in the room is far more um, leveling about my state of mind and what I'm here to do and that this is a shared thing. We're gonna communicate with each other. I might be doing most of the talking in a lecture, but it's an energy that we're feeding off of. That's exactly right. I'm doing all of the singing, but it's a shared energy. Yeah. And not to, I mean, extrapolate too much, but I think it it, it goes to the relationship between a physician and the patient as well. Oh, like I absolutely agree. It should definitely be. It's not always this way, but in my opinion, it's a it's a very um, reciprocal relationship. And kind of through your experience, maybe if they would have, um, not to put blame on any of your previous physicians or or anything like that, but if they would have let you play more of a role. Because you you did mention that you you kind of self-diagnosed and you weren't believed originally. And and as physicians, we should know that the patients really do know their bodies the best. They're, we have all these this scientific training to explain what's going on, but but they know their symptoms. And, and a lot of times if they have a hunch that it's this or that, that um, to, to work with them. And, and it, I mean, that's a whole conversation, but... But that reciprocity is there too in a physician-patient mm-hmm. relationship. That like you know, we're we should be on like level level playing fields here. You just bring something and I bring something, and we work together as a team to solve it. Instead of like you know, I'm the all wise knowing person, yeah. and I'm going to yeah. give you the answers and heal you. You know, it's a it's a it's a team. And that effort. goes back to something she said earlier, which is as soon as you feel like you are the expert and know everything, you're actually the problem. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great way to put it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And actually we do one of my favorite things that we get taught in our like preclinical things when we're in an interaction is this idea of shared goal setting, like especially for a long term patient, like sitting down and being like, okay, what are we going to work on or how are we going to figure this out and not think of it as that you sit there and I'll solve it. But as a we are in this together and it's actually something that we get taught as um, how to break bad news to patients as well as to be like, we're still in this together even though this is bad, we're going to work through this. And then it's it becomes much more supportive as opposed to a lecture, essentially. Right. You know, um, also, at the end of performance, at the end of the night, you know, people applaud. Um, this is a particular hard part for me, is actually taking in appreciation. Mm-hmm. And I, I tend to have like an energetic wall to just let that bounce back and want to give it back to them. And that's a thing in my life too, is that I, I find it hard to receive. This is all very personal, but (laughs) part of the shared experience is to be able to take in appreciation and give it, you know, to let that be part of the shared experience too, because the love that you can get back is, is healing for you. You know, you learn something yourself from that. Well, that's interesting because I think um, <clears throat> at least for a long time, physicians were thought to sort of wall themselves off mm-hmm. from um, their patients and yeah. their experiences. Because but that's it's too understandable. In- you- well, it's a very intense relationship. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And, and um, you know, there's a there's a fear that I, your objectivity will be compromised, um, blah, 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 blah. I think, I think maybe there's a movement somewhat away from that. Mm-hmm. Um, in the current uh, way of thinking about uh, that relationship, um, which I think is healthy. 
But uh, humanity is here now, you know, trying to talk about how to have narratives with our patients and, you know, they, that kind of thing. Uh, it, 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 there is a movement away from that, even at a curriculum level. Yeah. 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 And I think as a cultural level, it's no longer it's no longer considered bad form to want to like cry with or hug your patient or be emotional in front of a patient. It's no longer considered taboo. I think it's like no, you have emotions too. It's fine to share it. I, I healing. The first mm -hmm. time I saw a doctor when I was telling him my story, he teared up, and I saw him wipe away a tear. I just it was so profoundly moving to me that I was being seen as a human being, yeah. and that I could, he let me see his humanity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and your 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 doctor who, you know, made that that bad call about your your diagnosis originally, and who, you know, sort of let you know that how devastated he I was. I mean, he was. That, I mean, he yeah. was. You know, very. I assume very emotional about it. Yeah. Um, and letting you know that makes you understand that you know he's just as human as you are just as likely to get things wrong. I think, I mean, a lot of doctors are just afraid of being sued, right? For malpractice. Yeah, well, yeah there is yeah. that concern. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So they don't admit. Well, one thing we really try to impress on the med students here at Carver is the idea that it's, it's in the best interest of the patient and overall in the quality of care that people can deliver to just ask for help. You don't have mm -hmm. to have all the answers. You know, the people come to you, you have an expertise, you apply it, and it's okay to be wrong. Go ask a friend, bring more people to the table. Like that's, it's an important lesson to learn. And I think a lot of med students, you know, labor under the impression that they just have to know everything and get everything right all the time. And that it's something wrong with, you know, not being perfect. And there's no such thing as being perfect. Oh, yeah. what pressure. What yeah. terrible pressure. <laughs> and and uh, Nice to hear someone say that. Well, <laughs> But I, I mean, it, it's also been pointed out through research that they, that ability to admit to being wrong um, means that you're less likely to get sued. Mm -hmm. Is that um, right? It is. Yeah. Because it means that like the patient kind of sees you as like a person that made a mistake as opposed to a jerk who hurt them. Right. Right. Or that simply like just giving an apology. We're in the middle of our like ethics, ethics classes right now that are discussing like liability and really the foundation of that is what we're all talking about is just like humanizing physicians mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and with that is our interpersonal normal interpersonal relationships that include apologizing when it's necessary and when you humanize a physician it's you know there's a less chance that you're going to have you know yeah. legal issues in the future well, you'll be you, forgiven yeah perhaps right right yeah i mean and that's that's at the root of apology yeah. You know, so. And this also goes back to what we talked earlier about that hubris where like even if you're not necessarily afraid of being sued, the fact that like going into a room and saying I was wrong, I made a mistake and I hurt you. It just sucks because so many people internalize their own knowledge as part of who they are. Mm -hmm. And then when you're saying I was wrong, it's like that's almost a per it shouldn't be. But it yeah. feels like a, a personal wound. Like, yes. like I myself internally was now, wrong. Now my identity is about being the person who is wrong. Yes. If there was something that you wanted to say to, you know, future physicians who are going to treat patients like you, um, what would you want them to know and what would you want them to take into their practice? Oh, wow. <laughs> I don't know that I could presume to say that. I mean, a lot of what we covered, we just talked about is what I would want them to know, it's okay to admit that you were wrong, um, to please 
not close yourself in the box of your own knowledge and think that that's the limit, you know? I mean, I think one of the things I find most liberating in myself is to know how little I actually know because there's this vast universe of things that I could still learn to the end of my life. And that's so thrilling. I think uh, beginner's mind, compassion, ability to admit you're wrong, asking for help. Mm -hmm. All of those things are essential to being a good doctor and to being a good human being. And before we wrap up, I just wanted to say uh, one observation. Uh, you mentioned during the panel earlier, it's sort of uh, life coming full circle. You know, it turned out your neurosurgeon was apprenticing under one of our yeah. neurosurgeons. And uh, I was raised in a household uh, that listened to an awful lot of Johnny Cash. And my uncle uh, used to run a Americana and Roots Rock uh, radio show in Tucson, Arizona for many mm. years and, and interviewed your father many times. And oh. so I feel like this is a bit of coming circle for our family <laughs> getting to talk to you today. So. Don't you find as you get older that the circles keep closing? <laughs> smaller oh, and smaller. And smaller. <laughs> they do. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Yes. Oh, thank, thank you so you. much. Thank yes, you It's been a real honor. And now that you've been on the Short Code Podcast, I think you can expect a big career boost. <laughs> Finally get the success you deserve. I'm thrilled. Uh, thank you so much. Miranda, Alexa, Dr. Sipla, thank you for being my co-host today. Always. And special thanks to Paul Brohan at Hancher Auditorium and Dr. Ted Abel of the Neuro Iowa Neurosciences Institute for bringing Roseanne here today. And thank you, Shortcodes, for making us part of your week. If you're new here and you like what you heard today, subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever fine podcasts are available. I remind you that your questions are vital to this show because they mean the show can be about what you want it to be about. Uh, so send your questions and comments to the shortcodes at gmail.com where you can leave us a message at 347-SHORT-CT. We'll talk about it on the show. While your podcast app is open, give us some stars and a review uh, to let us know if we're doing right by you. The show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine, student government, and ongoing support from the Writing and Humanities program. Our opening music is by Dr. Vox, and our closing music is by Catmosphere. We'll talk to you in one week. Thank you.